Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter, too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by speechtherapypd.com. Hey, this is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So my non-financial disclosures. I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, SCISHA, a current Board of Trustees member with the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia, and I am a current member of ASHA, ASHA SIG-13, SCISHA, the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia, SHAB, a member of the National Black Speech-Language Hearing Association in Basla, and Dysphasia Research Society, DRS. Additionally, I volunteer with ASHA as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite podcast from speechtherapypd.com as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with speechtherapypd.com. And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator. And I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. So those are my current disclosure statements. Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. All right, everybody. It is the first episode of the year. And thank you for joining us for this absolutely heartfelt, passionate conversation. Um, also, I hope you enjoyed the break off like we did because December was whew, um, end of the semester, end of the year that Aaron and I both moved and it, it's been a doozy. So thank you for hanging with us while we took some time off to be with our families and our peoples and all of our cats because I'm now the proud mommy of three orange tabbies that have decided to adopt us and live in our garage. So that's pretty much it for Pack Dawson Update. We're now predominantly cats instead of dogs. But I digress. Today, we have 
just an amazing organization that I'm the executive director and founder on. And I am honored and humbled to um, to have her and to host them. So please allow me to introduce Ms. April Helper, a licensed professional counselor. I told her, I was like, don't worry, I can remember the three words, but my ADHD brain did not make it that far. But she's a licensed professional counselor, as well as the executive director of none other than the Adagio House, which this... It is an amazing organization located in Harrisonburg, Virginia, that supports neurodiverse individuals and their caregivers. And April, thank you so much for coming on. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. It's great to be here. (laughs) Well, okay. A little bit about First Bite. We, We support... Our patients, our clients, our tiny humans from NICU all the way kind of up until like that middle school, high school range. And most of our listeners are practicing speech language pathologists, but we also have a lot of caregivers that tune in as well as interprofessional colleagues, such as OTs. We've had other counselors, other social workers on, and we kind of go all over the place. But I love to hear everyone's backstory. So can you give us your backstory, your training, your schooling, and then how that led to create the Adagio House? Absolutely. So when I was actually in seventh grade, I got a brochure in the back of in the back of our church. There was this flyer for a Master of Arts in Counseling program that was starting up. And I was like, I'm going to do that. Like, I just felt very sure that this was what I was supposed to do. It was kind of random for a 13-year-old to to just be so sure about something like that, but there we go. And it started me on a trajectory. I ended up finding one of very few places in the U.S. that would do an undergrad in counseling. Usually you get an undergrad in psychology or sociology or social work, and then move on to a master's. So I got my undergrad degree in counseling and then sort of did a a sidebar as a youth pastor for a while, and then as a pastor of care and counsel, just because I love human beings and I love knowing how I can serve and, and how I might be able to help families to move through all kinds of things. And then I eventually went back, got my master's at the place where I thought I would when I was in seventh grade, which is Eastern Mennonite University here in Harrisonburg. And it took me a while. I started and um, about two weeks into the semester, I found out that I was going to have my second child. And uh, <laughs> right, my first pregnancy, I ended up on bed rest. And I was told by doctors at the time that the same thing that had happened the first time around was likely to happen with every child. And so I was expecting that this probably was not going to be a smooth ride and probably not a super great time to do my master's degree. So I dropped back to half time. I actually, my finals week that spring, In April, I actually had my newborn with me, and one of my professors walked up and down the hall carrying my newborn boy and bouncing him while I took my exam. (laughs) It was pretty amazing, and yeah, pretty amazing professor as well. So, but that experience was really the thing that started to put Adagio House in my mind. When I had my first child, she was like, not just meeting milestones, she was ahead of milestones and and we just like automatically bonded and connected and I felt so confident in my ability as a mama in just kind of knowing what she needed and being able to meet those needs. And then the the night in the hospital that my son was born kicked it off with a really different experience. He struggled to nurse. He, I couldn't calm him. He just kept crying. And, you know, the nurses would come in and check on me and I would be so upset because I couldn't soothe him and I didn't know what was wrong. And, and they assured me, you know, that sometimes they're just fussy babies. 
But, you know, when you're holding a newborn and they kind of snuggle into you, he didn't do that. He was kind of floppy. And, and I, and I felt like I couldn't even hold him well. Um, so it started me on this journey of, you know, here's this amazing little person that I love. And everyone's telling me, oh, you know, just a little jaundiced that we'll work through that. Just a fussy baby. We'll work through that. And there's something in me going, I think there's something else going on. Um, and, and really trying to say to somebody, please, please listen. Something's happening here. Like, like from day one, because everyone just said fussy baby, I was kind of flying on my own. So I went to Dr. Google Scholar. Do you know how many times that's killed me, by the way? (laughs) Right? Worst thing to do ever. I was like, at least I'm going to Google Scholar and not just straight Google. But, you know. That's where you find the rarer diseases and end up NIH. And then you're like, oh, I'm definitely contracted the bubonic plague. And right, entirely simple, but we're fine. It's fine. Right? I'll just die tomorrow. That's all. So I go on Google Scholar and I'm searching his symptoms and the things that I'm seeing. The first thing that pops up is fragile X syndrome. It's a rare genetic disease. And I'm like, oh, it's probably not that. It's rare, right? So I move on. And anyway, this kicks off a series of like the first person to believe me was our pediatrician at six months old. He said, oh yeah, he actually does now qualify for a diagnosis of low muscle tone. You know, as you grow and learn, I've I've begun to realize it's taken me a long time that people can have things going on and not qualify for a diagnosis, right? And so at the time I was like, yeah, low muscle tone, but like, what else? Because that's not it. Like, that's not the only thing. But that started, um, we got in-home services. We had speech to help him swallow because he had a hard time with swallowing. And we had an OT come in to help. He had serious aversions to putting his feet on the carpet and on grass and on sand and on, you know, many, many things. So we did the Wilbarger protocol and it worked and it was beautiful. We had a physical therapist come in to work on his muscle tone and helping him start to balance well enough to move or even sit up. And when he was three, he got another diagnosis. And when he was five, he got another diagnosis. It wasn't until he was 10 years old that he had to go in for some dental work that he needed anesthesia for. And we got a blood draw. And guess what? The blood draw confirmed fragile X syndrome. So all those years was the very first thing that popped up on my computer screen. And all those years of me questioning myself, my ability as a mom, people were telling me, oh, April, you're just paranoid. You know, like all of these things that made me feel so alone and not supported. And maybe I lost a lot of trust in myself during that time, right? Because like there was this instinct in me that had been so clear with my daughter and had led me in ways that felt true and good. And with my son, it it was like I couldn't figure it out, right? So all of that to say, that experience, those 10 years, really made me think about what it's like for a caregiver who is not supported doesn't have people believing in them? And how can I create a space other caregivers could come have their needs met so that they can do a better job of caring for their loved one? So I very quickly then, once we started at Asha House, I very quickly realized that if I'm going to do a good job of being the best at caring for caregivers, I'm going to also be the best at caring for their loved ones. Because A caregiver cannot relax, cannot really receive support unless they know their loved one is supported and cared for and in an environment where they will thrive, whether the caregiver is plugged in right there in the moment right now or not. You hit soft, tender spots in my heart. And 
my stepmom's firstborn was full-term stillborn. He had Down syndrome and fragile X, and he passed away a week before her due date. And his name is J. Michael, and he's, you know, buried back home. But, oh my goodness, my mama melts whenever she sees a little one with Down syndrome because that would have been us, right? That would have been that that family. And 40 years later, it's still right there on the surface with my mama. Also, big picture, folks, I know we've had crucial conversations to name the book on health healthcare disparity, um, healthcare literacy and equity, all of those conversations. We've also talked about medical gaslighting, and it happens. Our physicians are still predominantly upper middle class white males. And as patients, we have the right to question and advocate. As service providers, we have the right to engage in professional discourse and advocacy and continuity of care and seeking to understand what else could be going on and doing the root cause analysis as to why you have an infant that has low tone and difficulty with pediatric feeding disorder and oral pharyngeal dysphagia. So when you're working with your caregivers and they say, something's not right, something's going on, listen to them because they are subject matter experts on their child. And everything that you just described ties back to the Maslow's scale of hierarchical need. And that basic physiologic needs of food, of safety, of, well, technically safety is the second tier, but like those basic needs, if they're not that, then our caregivers are not in a place to engage in goal development and dreaming about what's the next thing I want my tiny human or not so tiny human to work on, to um, work towards, to, to fill a need. And that's what Adagio House does. Y'all create a safe base. All right, now full disclosure. I really, really want my Uncle Matthew to go there one day. So, you know, I might be, you know, fully 100% biased in their awesomeness. (laughs) So like, I have to like give that little bit in. One of our dear friends is also on your board of trustees. Hi, Cherie. (laughs) And she's amazing. So like, you know, I mean, I'm a little biased in your awesomeness, but like, also, can we just acknowledge that you took what could have been a wound and a hurt and a sadness and through your through a crack, you're shining so bright. You took all of that and turned it into a light for good for others. And that is such a great gift. The way I find meaning in those places is what what have I learned and what can I offer because of that? What has this experience, however difficult it has been, what has it taught me? And how then can I be present for others? There's this Catholic monk named Richard Rohr who says that um, we either become better versions of ourselves through great love or great suffering. And I often think that I've, I've been really thankful to have had a, a lot of both. One day of our cocktails will tell you the backstory, but there's tiny ears in the other room. So I will um, <laughs> reserve my backstory for another day. But yes, <laughs> folks, we're recording over Christmas break and thing one and thing two are in the other room. <laughs> I guarantee they're video gaming. <laughs> uh, okay, so tell us what is Adagio House and what's your mission? Yes. So our mission is that we are reimagining care through clinical services, advocacy, relationships, and education, regardless of ability, identity, or status. We are thinking holistically about individuals in their communities and their families. Um, We are attempting to create a community of belonging where everyone is welcome um, and did not fully grasp how difficult that is until we were actually doing it. 
What does it mean for everyone to be welcome here? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Everybody. Sorry, I just heard my dad say, put your money where your mouth is, girl. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's, yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of the hardest things we can do. Everybody means everybody. And yeah. here we are. Yeah. <laughs> <'Cause>, oh. <laughs> now I hear my grandma saying, honey, it takes all kinds to make the world go around. So you need a little bit more patience. <laughs> so I was going to pick that as my word of 2024 was patience. However, I am, it's, it's still so freaking hard. So I went with grace because I'm going to give myself grace while I still think about patience and it makes my face make that face. So maybe next year, maybe, maybe in 2025, I'll pick patience, but this year the word is grace. So, um, yes. Okay. So this is a very lofty goal. Honestly, (laughs) honey, you, you picked a Mount Everest there, friend, but it's, it's actionable. And again, full disclosure, folks, our clinic is partnering with them to support making this work. So folks, if you are in the position that you're a clinical educator, or if you are a director of a clinic at your university, there's ways that you can partner with these organizations or um, something similar to teach your students how to work with a population that's often underserved, overlooked. Everybody thinks about children. We don't often think about what happens when the children get into middle school or high school or our young adults or our adults with differences, disabilities, neurodiversity. I like how my cuckoo clock kicked in right when I said neurodiversity. I'm like it. I lost my cuckoo clock. Um, it, she's about 150, 160 years old and working again. So it's wonderful, except now I know why my grandparents let it go unworking. <laughs> I made myself feel sad. But this is, you're truly creating something that supports individuals through interprofessional practice. So can you talk about like, the different partners and how they're collaborating? Absolutely. So one of our big goals is for for us to be able to have an eye on every human being that comes in here in, a, in as holistic a way as we possibly can. So currently in our agency, we offer psychotherapy, we offer life coaching, and we just hired an OT again. So I'm really excited to have an OT back on our team. I think the intersectionality of sensory needs and emotional needs is huge. And we need to be developing better partnerships between psychotherapists and occupational therapists to be able to really address the needs that come up in neurodiversity and, and not to, not to fix people, not to change people, but to support them in, in being able to meet sensory and emotional needs because there's so much overlap. Can I ask a question? Yeah. What, when you say a psychotherapist, I don't really know what that is. Oh, yes, yes. So that is just a distinguishing way to talk about therapy that is counseling versus therapy that is occupational or speech. I use the word psychotherapist because when I think about counseling, I think more about what I would probably put in the category of coaching, which would be helping someone to like work through a specific problem, a transition, to support them in their growing. And when I think about psychotherapy, I think more about depth work and what are those deep needs within me, whoever I am, that maybe stem from my childhood or maybe stem from something that happened to me many years ago when I was a young adult. And how can we bring healing? So I think about psychotherapy as a healing thing. And I think about counseling as a growth supportive transitional kind of thing. My girlfriend, Erin, is going to love you. Her undergrad is in psychology from Pitt. And then she went on to be an SLP, but her focus 
is on trauma-informed care, but from the perspective of how do we help on that healing journey and getting back to the healing part. Like when you're a feeding therapist, we're a huge component is of the four components of a pediatric feeding disorder. One of them is the psychosocial piece, but it's like, how do we help them on that healing with that, with that component? So yes. And that's actually one of the huge reasons why I'm so excited about partnering with your clinic, because I think that when we can look at it, an individual and say, it's not just about helping them to eat. That's super important, but like, it's about healing the pain that has happened because something that is so fundamental has been so hard, right? And, and no matter how old that person is, whether it's a tiny person, whether it's someone who's, you know, 75 and had a stroke and had been eating well all their life. And all of a sudden they're having a hard time with swallowing now, right? There's pain attached to that. And there's pain that exists in our, in our families for not being able to participate in something that is so communal and so driven by a sense of belonging. And yeah, so I'm super excited about developing that partnership because I think that speech is another huge component of looking at human beings in a rounded way. And I also think that like we have a social worker on staff here. I think that looking at the community supports that people can access in addition to their family, how can families access other organizations that help support them through whatever they might be going through? You talk about a social worker, and I'll be honest, a lot of times when clinicians are in graduate school and they're student clinicians or when they are first out in the world, they have very limited exposure or experience in either interprofessional education or interprofessional practice with social workers. I had zero training on it when I came through undergrad and grad school many, many moons ago. And my first experience with social work was contacting DSS. So I had this in my mind's eye that social work was a the bad guys that come and take families apart, but they're taking the family apart for the safety of, of someone who's at risk, right? That was my limited experience. And over time, it kind of morphed. Honestly, honestly, the changing point was when I had a family whose grandmother was a social worker and she was like, oh honey, we do so much more than that. And like, but had I not had that little guy, he was a pistol. Oh my God. He would headbutt you if he was mad. (laughs) Sorry, Like you had to watch your nose and like, he could be mad that you didn't wind the toy fast enough, but like, Got a communication device for that little guy. But anyways, the grandmother was the first one that like snapped me down. So can you kind of talk about what is the role of the social worker within Adagio House? Like for the caregiver and for, do you use the term clients or or patients? Like what word do you use? We use clients or participants depending on what services they're accessing. Right now, our social worker is primary primarily doing outpatient therapy, which is is great. Therapy. Yeah. Yeah. So so someone who just has a bachelor's in social work couldn't do outpatient therapy at Adagio House. But once you have a an MSW, then you're working toward so a master's in social work, then you're working toward an LCSW in Virginia, which is a licensed clinical social worker. And a licensed clinical social worker would do outpatient therapy, just like a licensed professional counselor like myself would do. So that's her primary role right now. We're hoping to develop this interdisciplinary assessment team in which she would help families to connect with other community organizations, services in Adagio House and services outside Adagio House, whether here in town or online, international, whatever, that would support them. So when I think about social work, in contrast to licensed professional counselor, social workers really tend to focus on that network of people, that net that is supporting the family and helping them to heal, make progress, meet their goals, whatever 
that might look like. So the social worker might be the one that connects this client with a speech therapist, right? Like, I think you really could use speech. In my head, I got all excited. Like they go up the Maslow scale of need, like helping them hit the next attainable goal. So they feel safe. So they're ready for the next step, feel safe. And they're ready. Oh, I love that. Okay. These, this is rather lofty. You have an amazing team, but now at Adagio House, what ages are y'all supporting? So we're actually supporting any age that we possibly can. Our youngest client, I think, has been 18 months old, and we've seen that client with the family so that it's a, it's a family therapy session, but we have to have an identified client in the mix for insurance reasons. Sometimes we have some challenges billing Medicare, but when we can bill Medicare, our oldest has been 76 or 77. So we're across the lifespan and we're hoping to develop out Medicare billing is going to get better in the new year, which is really exciting. And so we're hoping to really build out our work with the older population, both people with disabilities and their caregivers. I think about aging parents. I think about siblings. I think about spouses. You know, another spouse has had some kind of injury or accident or, or health emergency and they've become a caregiver for their husband or wife. Okay. So y'all, one of the reasons why April and I wanted to have this conversation was Adagio House is unique and local to Harrisonburg, Virginia, because this is, lack of a better phrase, this is what, your fifth baby? I think you told me the other day you have four children all together. So this is what, That's number right. five. Yes. So this, is right. your, this is your fifth baby. <laughs> Growing pains, birthing pains. <laughs> I've had a few projects that felt like a third and fourth child. And I'm like, well, I get it. Uh, especially the stress eating. Man, jalapeno chips and a little bit along. Like, that's my thing when I am stress eating. But they're not so forgiving on a baseline. <laughs> Delicious going down. But <laughs> I really like jalapeno chips. Okay. <laughs> so moving on. But this model can be replicated out to provide services. So that's kind of why we're also doing this because we're hoping that you take this and you're like, yes, I want to create a center that's interprofessional practice and we're looking at providing services holistically and, and get it up. So I have a couple of questions. One, what type of programs are there within Adagio House that clients or participants can come in and receive? And then two, the, the life coaching and the life skills. That one I really find intriguing because as a profession, we were taught um, executive functioning skills. And being neurodiverse and having a fair bit of the ADD, ADHD myself, it always left a sour taste in my mouth, the term, because my brain works different. But when we focus on executive functioning or dysfunction, it has the connotation that there's one right way to have and execute executive functioning skills versus we just might need different approaches. So that was two very, very different questions. But can we take it back to the first one? <laughs> like what programs? Yeah, absolutely. So right now for our clinical services, which are, are those that I mentioned, we also offer respite, which comes in the form of individual and group respite. So if a caregiver has a loved one that just they they need to go get groceries and their loved one does not do well in the grocery store, whether it's the lighting or the busyness or just all the things, you know, whatever it might be, they could just drop their loved one off at Adagio House. I think we say 48 hours advance notice. I think that's the current. <laughs> so we need a little bit of advance notice, but they can just drop their person off and they can go get their groceries and come back. We're developing out different classes that could go with respite. So in January, we're actually opening a community center, which we're super excited about that will house all of our respite services. So we're going to have a cooking class and we're going to do a card making class and we're going to do a knitting class and a painting class and a yoga class and a Pilates class, and, um, creative writing and a book club um, and, and just make the 
the respite offerings much more interesting for the individuals coming and and serving different groups. So the book club, I'm thinking specifically about college-age students who might uh, be neurodiverse and um, they maybe want to connect with their peers and talk about um, books on social justice or disability rights or just a great novel, um, whatever whatever that might look like. Um, so we're really trying to enrich our respite services through the community center and those offerings there. We're also trying to build out our advocacy more. Um, I feel so strongly that we live with so many broken systems and um, systems that are not serving those who need them most well. Um, I, I think that there are many, many, many very good-hearted, big-hearted people who are attempting to make those systems work. Um, and I think what we need is advocacy for ways we can make our systems better. Sometimes I think we just need to burn them all to the ground and start afresh. But, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, well, <laughs> Barring that, how can we how can we improve on, on what we have? <laughs> um, no, yeah, and, and then I ever heard something in my life. <laughs> and then the final component is education. So we're we're thinking a lot about um, how can we help people understand who they are, right? Like when you say there's not just one way for someone to have executive functioning skills, right? That they need to get through life. Um, helping people to understand that's really true, right? Like we do not have to come in here and say, you must do things in this way in order to be successful. No, that's not actually the way life is. There are so many ways for people to have meaningful, fulfilling lives. And, and we need to educate individuals who are experiencing the differences to say, there's nothing wrong with you. You need different supports and, and you're just beautiful exactly as you are. And when you get the support that you need, it's all good, right? There's, there's nothing to be fixed about who you fundamentally are as a human being. Can I give the suggestion that you add in a course on educating the educators? Yes. So that's, that's actually one of my passions is I dance around a little bit. Oh. <laughs> that be, like, she stimmed. I saw it. We <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> that is something that's kind of where I started, um, was going to some different places where there are schools and therapists and educators and talking about these things and I love that like it is um it is the uh, to me if I can change the context in which individuals are existing then I have a better chance of bringing healing for them right because a, a client may come and see me for an hour a week or maybe it's an hour every two weeks right but if I can change the context in which they're living, in which they're going to school, in which they're going to work, then the chances for them to live a meaningful, enriched life just exponentially improve, right? So if if we as therapists can influence families, if we can help caregivers to understand there's nothing wrong here, your kid needs different supports, your your adult child just needs some different supports right now. And, and they're a great human being. They are beautifully, wonderfully made humans. And we just need to support them, right? Um, in, in the ways that they need it. And then if we can do that in schools, if we can do that in workplaces, right? Like it creates a context in which people can thrive and everybody does better when supports are are in place it, it's not just benefiting the the person most impacted it's benefiting everyone around them too it gets hard to unlearn what we were taught 
So if you too are slightly gray haired and have maybe some Botox, my appointment is tomorrow morning. I literally have my card right here waiting on me. But um, you probably were taught and trained in the clinician-led therapeutic approaches, right? We set the expectations, we set the goals, we set the tone, the child comes to the table and we do tabletop activities for therapy and it is clinician-led. That critical component of evidence-based practice is caregiver, child, patient lead, right? Like we take into account what it is that they that they want to work on. But what April's talking about is us going through that fundamental shift, listening to autistic voices, listening to neurodiverse voices. When they say that traditional therapy, traditional ABA, uh, it takes away their muchness, not in all cases, but in enough that statistically it is empowering. And we have to listen to autistic voices when they compare those older, I hate saying old school, but like those old school traditions um, as causing trauma. Because for some, and for more than some, it did. It does. So that's why the onus is on us to learn and evolve as clinicians so that we're seeking to understand what is it that they want to communicate? How do they want to communicate? How do they want to engage in the world and be successful? Also, there's a growing number of neurodiverse speech language pathologists, which I just love, 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 because as they're coming through graduate programs and undergraduate programs, applying for graduate school, and then going on some of them to engage in clinical research, that that opens opportunities for healing and for growth that we just, we haven't been able to conceptualize until like within the last five to 10 years. And it's just, oh, that's the stuff that gets me excited. But this, this is hard, folks. This growth is hard. Change is hard. And we can acknowledge the hard and then say, okay, but this is your safe place to learn. So um, that's why, <laughs> that's why we do first bite. <laughs> Okay, so so then the executive dysfunction and the executive functioning and the life coaching. Like I think about the clients and participants when they come in and if they have a goal of they want to work here, how do you how does Adagio how support that in a uplifting way? Because that's where I get scared because what I've historically seen hasn't always been uplifting. Yes. Yes. So I, I just adore our life coach who's here on staff. Her name's Esther and she really, she herself is neurodiverse. Um, and she takes a really, uh, person-centered approach. So whoever is in front of her right now, she is going to ask, she asks just amazing questions, right? So she's like, where have you experienced success before in this area? And if someone says nowhere, she breaks it down into smaller pieces until someone can, can have a clear uh, picture or roadmap even of how they've gotten where they are because they didn't get to be a person who can come to life coaching without having some success, right? Um, somewhere along the line. And, and then what are their dreams and goals and, and how can they break down the, or segment the path to get there? Right. And, and I think the other thing that Esther does really, really well is helping people to define dreams and goals really, um, concretely, right? So sometimes we might say, I want to be an actor. Um, and she she would say, okay, so what does that mean to you? Like, does that mean you want to star in a movie? Or does that mean you want to do some Pictionary on Friday nights? And 
you know, or charades or what I, you know, like, what does that dream mean for you? And, and, and why? Like, why do you want that? What's important about that? Because it may be that we have in our heads this, this idea of something that really won't actually work for us. It won't actually be the thing that, that provides meaning and fulfillment in our lives. But when we get to the nitty gritty of, I really enjoy making people laugh. Right. So maybe it's not that I want to be in a funny movie on a big screen. I want to make the people around me happy. I want to make people laugh. And I can do that in so many ways, not just being an actor. Right. So she really helps people to pull things apart, um, which I really appreciate about her. And she's also um, really gifted at seeing that there is not just one way to get to a thing we can go all different directions and get to the place that there's meaning and fulfillment. You said charades and I um, giggle snorted laughed because my <laughs> oldest is um, neurodiverse. Well, both of them are, but, um, and uh, bless his little hearts. We would do charades to like help him stretch and grow that creativity. Also it's fun. And he would, inevitably draw the kids um because we played the kids version he would always get rock and his rock was he would just curl up in a ball on the ground and wouldn't move for the whole <laughs> are you a circle are we a sphere <laughs> like what's happening i don't are you dead i don't know about it. Like, it, was, it was rock so like whatever <laughs> so and, you know, there's only so many deck cards in the deck. And inevitably, yeah. he would always, always, it's like when I'm cooking, my husband will always find the bay leaf. If I'm making yes. a stew, he always gets, the, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many I put in or if I serve him first or if he's the last one out of the pot, he always finds the bay leaf. But yeah, there's, there's that. Okay. So when they come in for, <laughs> again neurodiversity that folks that's what we're here for um when they come in for these skills and for this training do is there like a prescriptive method like they have so many um sessions a week or so many sessions in a set period of time or is it um uh a la carte you get what you need how you're built that's a nitty-gritty detail but if i'm an ipp partner and i want to partner with them I'm just thinking that component and overlap. Yeah. So we do a la carte. Um, we really try to, to tailor things for the individual and for the family, right? So if we're often, we're getting um, the identified individual who is neurodiverse, has a disability, has some behavior that is bringing them in to therapy, right? And um Pretty quickly from there, we are asking the parents who might be bringing a little person, hey, do you see anyone? Because we know that when there are these behaviors going on, it can be stressful. And so how can we support you, right? So as much as possible, um, our one prescriptive thing is to think about the whole family system, right? Um, and how do we how do we either incorporate the family system in the session that is happening, or how do we help others in the family system to get the support they need? Um, and how do we help everyone in the system to understand one another and, and take care of one another and support one another? So that's our only prescriptive thing. <laughs> I, love, I love that. So in-house, do y'all have designated times of the week? Because this is... This comes from a, a billing question. Having run my own private practice um, several moons ago, Heartwood Speech Therapy, I had a field day doing it. Um, it was speech and speech only, right? It was me, myself, and I. But I would structure time in for continuity of care, phone calls with OTs, with service coordinators, with EIs, with pediatricians, none of which was billable or reimbursable. It just... It was what had to happen, right? But I, I think back about larger companies, they'll set, um, or larger private practices, they'll set a productivity mark. You have to hit this. And as licensed clinicians, they we are, that is 
<laughs> my cuckoo clock. Um, that's where process. It's very, very stressful trying to meet productivity when best practices that IP and IPP component. So do y'all have that time allocated in throughout the week? We do. So right now, what we have on an individual level is uh, admin time, which we try for two hours a day. Um, and, and it can shift a little bit, right? We're trying for six clients, or six 50-minute sessions. So if you're doing half-hour sessions, um, it would be 12. Um, and, and having some admin space to either consult with colleagues or make those phone calls or do your notes, whatever might be needed. And then we also do um, almost every week a group supervision and consultation time where some of that is interdisciplinary and some of that is just with others within your discipline. And then monthly we have a staff meeting. Um, so staff meeting often is more administrative stuff, but if there are things that come up in that space, we can work together to collaborate on those as well. Rounds, like grand rounding, so that way you can advocate. And, and yes, yes. And that's, honestly, rounds is an art form. Learning how to, in a brief period of time, get to the heart of the discussion, what's going on with the patient or the client or the participant, but doing it in a way that's um, strength-based, I find to be very... Um, that is challenging because we don't want to talk about everything the tiny or not so tiny human can't do. It is, hey, this is where we're where we're thriving, but we see them struggling here. How can we? What strategies are there? Who do we need? Those kind of questions in order to level up to the next um, the next skill um, zone of scaffolding. That's what I go back to. Like in my head, it's a bullseye, and it's like. Like, what do we need to do next to build them out in a confident, this is where they want to go kind of way? So, okay. Can can I ask you a, a personal question? And you feel free to tell me to bugger if it's too personal. So <laughs> no, I'm, I'm an open book. <laughs> okay. Yay. Um, but you have, for all intents and purpose, a folks that are listening were primarily clinicians and you have walked this not just as your own clinical perspective, but as a caregiver, what do you wish, what do you wish that we knew when we come in, when we have those first conversations, when we have those second conversations, when we're doing an assessment, when we're writing our reports, what for all the SLPs and maybe OTs that are tuned in, what do we need to know? Yeah. I think what you said in the beginning about gaslighting in in the medical profession, um, that has been kind of the drum I've been beating uh, since, since my son was probably three, maybe four. He's going to be 18 soon. Um, so... Um, I really feel like there, there is this, um, it is intangible, but it is this thing where I can be in a meeting and feel like I'm part of the team, or I can be in a meeting and feel like I'm the problem, or I can be in a meeting and feel like I'm an outsider looking in. And, and of those three, the meetings that I find to be the most nourishing for myself and for my son are when I am viewed as part of the team. When my perspective matters. And I think, so here's, here's the hard part about welcoming everyone. I mean, one of the hard parts. Um, the, there are parents that are harder to have on the team. There are parents that feel like they're part of the problem rather than part of the team. And what I just 
deeply want everyone to know is that everyone is doing the best they can. And when a parent isn't doing well, there are needs for support for that parent because that parent desperately wants to do the best for their child. There are very few, very few parents out there who are not wanting the absolute best for their child. And the parents in that small percentage of people, you know, maybe 10% or less of parents that don't want the best for their child, um, that's when we get other services involved, right? We say, okay, this isn't appropriate care. But for the rest of parents, that 90% or more, they're doing the best they can. And if they're not doing well, then we need to find the support that they need to do better, to learn more, to build their skills, to build their ability to have patience or build their ability to understand their child um, and, and keep them as part of the team. Folks, as she's talking, I think back over the course of my clinical career. And when I first started out, I remember being told we had to write a goal for every deficit identified on a standardized instrument, right? So you might end up writing 15 goals based upon one standardized assessment, which we are all intimately aware of the inherent racial and um, economic bias that fall into those standardized assessments. It's predicated on upper middle class white males, predominantly from the Northeast. They don't take into account what the client, child, participant, patient, or student necessarily wants to work on. So give yourself permission, in my word of the year, grace. Give yourself grace that you don't have to write 12 different goals. You can write an amazing plan of care with just three. If the three goals are meaningful to the individual and their caregivers that you're working with. Also, our therapeutic presence. Are we taking care of ourselves when we are called to serve and help heal? Because there are seasons in your life where life can be hard. You could be going through hell and back right now in your personal world. And, oh, sorry, my son just achieved points on his game and my computer notified me. <laughs> Edit it out. Uh, but there are seasons in your life when it can be hard. And that's okay. But that's when we have to critically assess, are we addressing our fundamental needs? Because if we ourselves have slipped on our Maslow scale, if we ourselves are struggling, then it impacts the care that we deliver. And we can give ourselves grace for that. Um, one of my girlfriends, Megan Brandon, made a post the other day. If you have 40% today and you give 100%, if you give all of that 40%, you're given 100% of yourself, which is, she's actually a licensed social worker because, of course, she is. Um, Megan's been on here. She's wonderful. She talks about ACEs and worst childhood events and those, kind, yes. Um, but at the same time, if you find yourself perpetually pouring from 40%, what's going on, honey? you got to take care of you. So just take those actionable items because everything April said is right and valid. And yet it's a new year and with it comes fresh starts um, and, and longer days, which always makes me very, very happy. But Take care of you so that you can fully serve those that you have been called to serve. So, big thoughts. We are nearing the end of our time. 
So before I ask where folks can send their mad money to, to support you, what, what, what do you hope people take away from your walk, from your journey, from Adagio House? Give us your, your part and thoughts there, man. Hmm. I hope that people think about the power of interdisciplinary work, the power of um, working in a holistic way, a comprehensive way with a family, with, with a community of care. Um, and maybe, maybe we could all just burn down the systems together and start over. Maybe that's another takeaway. <laughs> and I will bring the matches. <laughs> I just feel like um, there's always this tension between um, existing within the established systems because we can bill insurance and we can get reimbursement. You know, if if sometimes we have to bill a second time because we're automatically um, denied a claim. Um, you know, like there are things um, versus standing outside the systems and and saying. This is actually the care that the human being in front of me needs, and it's not reimbursable. And so how can we provide that kind of care? Um, how can we work with the family? How can we work with the community? How can we work with this person? And how can I find the community I need because sometimes taking care of me isn't enough. I need someone else to take care of me too. Um, and, and so how can I find those spaces where I feel a sense of deep belonging, a sense of we've got this together, right? We, we're not doing this alone and we can take care of each other and we can imagine new things and bring healing and transformation to people in ways that are tangible. Okay. So folks, y'all know my disclaimer, my unofficial disclaimer. Um, I love Jesus and I cuss a little. Those are my unofficial disclaimers. But um, what you said rings true for a family prayer that we have. It's put us where you want us in all aspects of our lives. Give us insight and understanding as to why we are there. Wisdom, endurance, and stamina to do the work that you have called for us to do. And that is a very powerful prayer because it will (laughs) put you in places that grateful that the universe has conspired to bring us together. So me too. (laughs) Cherie, um, with a very, very full heart, thank you for introducing us to this beautiful woman. And, um, and thank you. So, um, all right. If folks want to donate a little bit of their love money or a little bit of their mad money, as my grandma would say, where can they and how can they support Adagio House? Well, we would be super grateful um, on our website, adagiohouse.org. So it's A-D-A-G-I-O-H-O-U-S-E. And every time I spell that out, I think of the Mickey Mouse song because it's just exactly the same number of letters as M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Um, <laughs> so it's adagiohouse.org. O-R-G. And um, we have a donate button on our website. That's the easiest way to give. Um, and we are in our end of year campaign right now, um, trying to uh, make some good things happen for people in our community. So we would really value any support that you have. <laughs> Plot twist. This goes out in January. So they will have just wrapped the end of year campaign. That's <laughs> right. That's right. That's so true. <laughs> Beginning of year. Start the year right. <laughs> You too will have recovered from your holiday spending spree, but this is a good place to send your money. So, you know, there it is. But um, the really prettiest holiday card or newsletter because I got mine in the mail. So, oh, yay. Okay. So, um, also, y'all have social media, correct? 
Yes, we do. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn. We don't do TikTok yet. We keep aspiring to that, but I can't quite wrap my little 44-year-old brain around it. (laughs) Okay. My 40-year-old brain still calls it the tick of the talk, and I just... I cannot, although I do truly enjoy looking at the um, Tick of the Talks home renovation reels. Um, Oh, they're wonderful and very expensive to watch because I'm like, oh, I could do that. And oh, I could do that. But like, I'm going to be cut off from Lowe's. (laughs) 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 So no. Right. Um, April, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Folks. Thank you. Yes. Folks, check us out on First Bite on Instagram, Facebook, not on the Tick of the Talk. Um, good Lord, help us. Aaron might pull me there yet. Um, and um, be sure to um, check out our new project, the First Bite Boutique, which is the brainchild and passion project um, of Aaron. And it is a, uh, our boutique has set up um, t-shirts and sweatshirts for a purpose to raise awareness about um neurodiversity affirming care themes and um, quotes that we have um, expounded upon here on First Bite in the book Chasing the Swallow. And our goal is to use part of the profits to create scholarships uh, for colleagues and for students to attend some of our favorite conferences so that they can grow their evidence-based triangle. Um, So just like with all of our First Bite episodes where we want to expedite research to practice and pour back. The boutique's goal is the same. So take a peek at the First Bite Boutique. Erin, woman, we did it. You did it. Yay. Okay. Thanks, everybody. April, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's course. To complete the course, you must log into your account and complete the quiz and the survey. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete mailing address in your account profile prior to course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to reflect on your ASHA transcript. Please note that if this information is missing, we cannot submit to ASHA on your behalf. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you next time. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.